0: you're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, publisher of acowatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Our guest today is Michael Peterson, MD, Senior Manager and Health Innovation Lead at Accenture Health and Public Service. Dr. Peterson is a transformative physician executive who focuses on helping clients solve complex problems such as social determinants of health and the opioid epidemic through data and analytics. He serves as Innovation Lead at Accenture and is working to develop a solution to help Health and government organizations measure, manage, and mitigate the opioid epidemic in the United States. Dr. Peterson specializes in healthcare innovation, clinical and business operations, process optimization, health management, wellness and prevention, care value, and healthcare technologies such as clinical analytics, electronic health records, and health information systems. So Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Peterson and his work at Accenture Health. Thank you so much, Greg. And Mike, welcome to Pop Health Week.
1: Hi, Fred. Hey, Greg. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to get you on. I know it's been a while. We've been trying and talking about finally getting you on the show, so it's really fantastic to have you talk a little about what you're doing and uh, what's going on at Accenture. So perhaps we could start. Why don't you give our audience a little sense of your background and how you ended up at Accenture?
1: That's a great question. How much time do we have?
2: Um, <laughs> you know,
1: uh, it, it it could go forever. You know, I'm a pediatric emergency medicine doctor, trained at Wash U Children's Hospital, was chief resident, did a fellowship, and then moved into practice for about 12 years as a pediatric emergency medicine doc in a community hospital, was chief of pediatrics there and the lead physician for our labor and delivery operations. So then, you know, around 2014, 15, 2014 had an epiphany that I wanted to help in a more of a population health type of uh, experience versus a a one-patient-at-a-time interaction, which was great, loved it. But I just felt like I wanted to sort of take the lens, widen it a little bit, and then just tilt the the tripod over to the left 20 degrees and still be a physician, but really kind of get into the uh, opportunity to find a, a match where I could, take my skills as a clinician, but how can I help more of a population base? So I was able to kind of get into the Texas Medicaid account and was the medical director there and helped lead our, our work in operations and technology there and then moved into helping lead our opioid epidemic work, we, you know, really wrapped around uh, analytics in trying to help uh, states, counties, federal government a- entities, as well as uh, payer uh, pay, our, uh, pay our clients on how to best approach the opioid epidemic through data. And then most recently, working on uh, becoming the, uh, you know, the, the offering for our social determinants of health offering that is just a new space for us, which I'm very excited to talk about.
2: Well, that's fantastic. And obviously, social determinants of health are such a big issue now. It's kind of exploding all over the place. When you just look at that from a high vantage point, What's your sense of what's going on out there at this point?
1: So, you know, the
2: significant shift in this conversation as you and I
1: and, and Greg know from our many HIMSS meetings. You know, it was kind of a conversation uh, about two to three years ago is the first time I started to hear more about it from an industry perspective. But, you know, from social determinants of health, as someone who's done some MPH work, we we've known about this since the 50s, right? It's not something that's novel in terms of, the understanding and the academic perspective. So what we're seeing now of late are just recognition from the industry, which is great. As, you know, David Nash says, I'm glad people are talking about population health. It means that it's out there, right? So, and I know you can concur with that. So for social determinants of health, what we're seeing in the market are a lot of activity. Um, there's, you know, I kind of put them in big buckets. One is a bucket of point solutions um, are, uh, you know, uh, Startups or companies that look to either do analytics and give descriptive zip code level type of data and information to their clients. Then there's another bucket of conveners, I'll just call them digital Rolodex type of firms, that really say, look, we can provide your patients, your clients, the information to get a ride or the information to get food for those having food insecurity or transportation barriers. Then lastly, there's the end-to-end sort of a platform play where... They're trying to connect everything. And so what we've seen is really a lot of struggle. Uh, It's hard work, right? You and I both know that community uh, changing the behavior or trying to help in the social determinants of health space is really getting into the community and understanding from a culturally relevant perspective why, what are the decisions that people make that increase their barriers to health or their access to health or their lack of access to health once we understand those things, that's where I think a lot of the what's going on out there in the market is that they're not able to connect the technology with the data to the actual patient or client. And I think that a lot of it just has to do with understanding
2: these these behaviors. So you talked about technology is the, and these three buckets of, of uh, analytics, conveners, where there's point solutions and then those sort of end-to-end things. But I know, and we've discussed this a lot as a physician. And I know that you, as a physician, see this all the time. There's also a major people component to this. How does that get integrated? You know, it's not just all about the tech, is it? I couldn't have said it better. Uh, it's absolutely you're absolutely right. Uh, it is
1: technology will not fix social determinants of health, nor will money. Right. So, what I see is to get to your question, as a you know, when I was practicing on the front lines in a predominantly Medicaid hospital, you know, you'd see a mom with her two babies come in at three in the morning and you're, you know, you just try to get an understanding of, you know, how it is that she got there for something very benign like ringworm or just a, a, a rash. And you find out that she struggled with transportation, that she had to wait for her husband to come home who got off his job at, you know, midnight, got home. And then finally that was the first opportunity for her to come to the hospital to get So when you talk about this this people component, it is absolutely vital. And in fact, today we see significant work being done at the community-based organization level, at that granular on the streets in St. Louis. They're working hard to really get people engaged through door-to-door approaches, none of it being threaded with data or uh, technology. It's just old school, right? I'm going to have a community-based worker just knock on doors. So it think that there is an opportunity to digitize a lot and automate a lot of these attempts at engagement and understanding how people engage. Sort of this omnichannel approach to understanding how and when people want to interact with a health system or an insurance, uh, you know, a payer system. And I think that, you know, putting the person at the center is ideal to really helping solve this. But it's not just the data. Like I said, it's not the data in silos and it's not the, the, the technology, uh, it's not just as easy as threading those. It's really wrapped around this design thinking approach to the person sen- at the center of getting help. So it's almost like an Amazon experience for social determinants. How people consume health is different by community. I live in Austin, but East Austin, the population in East Austin, which is a vulnerable population, it's low socioeconomic status, they consume health differently than people in North St. Louis. And it's understanding the differences in these, what I call the, the DNA of the community or the fingerprint. It, once you get down to a little bit of that, I think what ends up happening is a lot of people trying to solve this are trying to get the data to be perfect. And what we see in the market are big, big players struggling with how do I know that these are the right people with diabetes that I need to really get my hands and the services wrapped around. And so the approach has to be, I think, uh, a combination of two things, better data, better understanding of the people you're trying to help with a culturally relevant and competent perspective, having people on the ground that, that can help you through a patient navigation type of approach and using those technology slash tools. And then lastly, it's really wrapped around breaking down the barriers of, of the silos of data and having them share because this people working in different efforts, and so streaming, uh, threading those different activities and all those activities into one space is ideal. And lastly, it's just hard work, and you have to have the uh, ability to really want to get into these communities to really truly help and not just give sort of a drone-level view and hope that who you give that information to is going to solve it.
2: So as, as you think about it, we've had these community groups and hospitals and healthcare systems and doctors all out there. Doing all kinds of stuff in the community, and yet we've continued to see our our numbers look bad really, and we struggle and recognize that now with the vast differences in in health equity and outcomes across communities et cetera is what what do you tell the providers around that? You said you know they 're looking for perfect data, so what are sort of the simple things they should consider to get going yeah well, when you know i, I i've been to enough conferences to hear that.
1: Some providers say, well, it's not really our responsibility. Um, I've heard that narrative. It's really, A, we don't have the money, and B, once I give them instructions or a diagnosis and a prescription. And I I think that that's not true. I think physicians in general and clinicians, the healthcare world on those front lines really do want to try and help the people that they're they're seeing. What happens is they don't know what happens when the patient leaves. So they may screen in the emergency department or in a clinic, what the barriers or what are the social determinants. But if they can't connect someone to them, to the help, it's almost, it's even more challenging to say, hey, are you hungry? And they're like, yeah, I, I have trouble getting healthy food for my, my, my daughter, but not given the opportunity and the, uh, the sort of the activity and the, the, to really follow through with that sort of screening. So to, to, to answer your question, you know, uh, the physicians are the frontline uh, caregivers they struggle with this. What happens when they leave my, my my front door? The payer struggles with the idea of the data is a little bit, you know, old by the time they, they get information on their patients. It's three months if they're lucky, maybe six months, dependent on the back and forth between payer and the and the provider. So they're dealing with a lag concept, and with, they're the ones who have the most I think to benefit from these opportunities. And so what. When I talk about massaging the data to per- perfection, it's usually the payer side that does that. From the from the Medicaid side or the public service side, they're in between. They'll take any help that they can get, but they also struggle with massaging this data. And I think the problem is is kind of what's going to continue to grow as we and all of us know, that data is only going to get more voluminous and there's going to be more, I think, struggle with stitching the right data pieces. So it brings me to this uh, opportunity I'm in um, at the AHIP conference in DC right now and we just presented a story on infant mortality in Ohio and it's a wonderful story because it gets to what you're getting at which is how to use data to help drive insights that then help reprogram the, the care that's given so you know Ohio had one of the worst infant mortality rates worse than some third world countries as this most you know a lot of they're not alone it's a, a, the growing problem. It's a, it's a huge problem in the United States. But what they found is through data is that a they, they broke down the silos of where the data sets. So Medicaid shared with public service, uh, the help you know, the uh, public safety, and then SNAP, TANF. They, you know, these big agencies that never share data. All through champion uh, of the leadership, were able to kind of get all their data. Those walls, the silos broken. And then you take a data set that a we have a community index that has over 200 public data sets, including FBI, CDC. That's where we start to understand the community health, or sorry, the health of the community. And then you ingest the data uh, of the client. But what you start to do is you really stitch together a 360 view of a person in Medicaid. And then a, what that also helps you understand is a longitudinal view where you can see the touch points for the different programs to this person including if they had a a baby that died within that first year. So when you start to build these pictures and start to get these puzzle pieces together, uh, what you find are some interesting data um, or some interesting uh, insights, which one is that if you're an African-American woman in the state of Ohio, you are already at an infant mortality rate close to 16.4 per 1,000. But if you're white, you're... Uh, your infant mortality rate is 4.8. So there's a growing disparity that was recognized in this data. And then you start to understand, well, why? Why is this? That's the the next question. And so what you found out was that if you're African-American and you deliver a baby in Ohio and you're on WIC and Medicaid, you had a 50% drop in infant mortality. Well, why would that even be the case? So I love that these insights can derive more uh, why questions. But when you really dig down further, you find out, that it's in the WIC program, it's not so much the long-term benefits of the, the ability to get food at a grocery store. It's really the breastfeeding classes or access to infantil that really helps up, that helps the babies. So 50% drop in infant mortality for African Americans on Medicaid and on WIC. Then you look at another slice of the data, and it shows that uh, close to 20,000 um, moms who were eligible for WIC were not on WIC, and so. You get to see these little inter, these insights, and then you can start, I already know that the three of us are thinking, wow, what's, how do you fix that, right? And it, there were so many different insights that we, we discovered through this work, and what is amazing is that they were rooted in social determinants, especially with the health inequities that occurred, barriers to transportation, the behavioral economic decision that a mom is going to make to not go to an appointment because she did the first five that were really benign, and now this fifth, sixth, seventh, the most crucial one, at week 20 to 27, she's deciding to skip because she doesn't have daycare, and it was a one-and-a-half-hour bus ride plus a 30-minute wait, and the appointment was, you know, minimal. So you figure out these cofactors that help, we, we, you know, that the state realized they needed they wanted to fix, and that's what made the state of Ohio and the, the leadership the pretty, I would say, avant-garde in, in the world of Medicaid and government data to be able to share it all. So we're quite proud of that, the opportunities that work with them.
2: And that's a a fantastic example of of taking the data and then digging into it and identifying, as you said, these unique insights around WIC and then on WIC or off WIC, eligible but not getting WIC. So two questions around that. One is who does that data and analytics or who should? And then the second question around that is then who sort of serves as the quarterback or the intervener in that situation to then go – begin to come up with solutions to solve that problem?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Fred. Uh, I think when you use the Ohio example, the first thing we did is you really understand what I said earlier, which is you have to think outside the box and be collaborative. A lot of states, counties, even payers in hospital systems just say, we have an analytics team, we can do it on our own. We're getting very disc- good descriptive data. Well, data science isn't exactly just descriptive analytics. There's a lot more to it. So one of the first things we do is come at it agnostic. We don't know what the data is going to tell us. More importantly, we developed this pod system of really, and it's this methodology of kind of working with the the client. And so we got with the state of Ohio, and who are the executive sponsors for this program? Get them in the room. And you've got all these key stakeholders to work with our teams, and our subject matter experts to really understand the data, right? In the old days, people just said, give us your data, and we'll spit it back to you with an answer. Uh, That's not the way you really should approach it now. What you have to do is, A, is this the right data to answer the question that we were trying to ask, which is, let's ask this question, wrapped around immortality, and then find out what data sets that we need to get to that will help move the needle towards a positive outcome. And so what ends up happening is if you go the old school way, which I'll just say isn't the way we do it, is you'll just spin around in data qualifying it, um, you know, trying to get it cleansed and, and massaging it, and it, you'll spend 75% of your time doing that. If you actually get directional and be real fast and furious in the, in the way that you ingest it, the person quarterbacking it is going to be the, state, the, the key client or person in charge of this, the project itself. So if it's in, in the state of Ohio, it's the Ohio Department of Health Analytics uh, group together with a collaboration with Medicaid, et cetera. But what they realized is they did the academic epidemiologic approach, and uh, you know, I'm a evidence-based medicine is where it's at. That is a great descriptive way to do this, but in order to get those insights that we just described, epidemiologic uh, approach will help solve some of that, but it's not going to give you this 360 view. And so the champion has to be somebody within – uh, the, the sort of the data sphere, the person who, who's going to own it. But it, it's even higher, the real big champion in this was the governor and then from the governor down, his chain of command. And so that's how I think that was really, in, in a government perspective, uh, one way to really break down those silos. The, the last piece is who owns, uh, you know, who, who really benefits from this and how does that, you know, get shared, et cetera. I think it's this collaborative approach, right? You have to build an ecosystem of partners. The state of health we recognize, hey, we're, we're not going to be able to do all the data science. We don't have the money or the resources to hire every piece of a data team that you need. So we're just going to, you know, do an RFP for this. But when you bring in the experts to help you with that, isn't just the data, right? Data is just the tool. It's not the end-to-end. No one's going to solve SDOH just in data alone. It's a currency, I think, that helps connect a way to solve it. What really matters is what you alluded to earlier, which is it's people, and it's also – and so when I say when we think people, I think the community-based organizations, the nonprofits, the the uh, AME church, the pastor, uh, it's getting connected and inculcated into the community to help message what you're trying to solve for and also have the relationships. Because really at the end of the day, it's about relationships. Who do people trust and who do they trust giving their information to? So the, that's the people piece. The technology is just a tool. Um, and what I think you need is someone who has the capability to ingest too many data sets at one time. Um, and I think you know there are a lot of players out there that do that. I just don't think there are a lot of players who get this lens of understanding a community and culturally appropriate and competent uh, approach and also one that just doesn't have the tools and assets available to really give the, the people what they need, which is the client in this case, which is a true insight in which they can then reprogram a better way to get moms eligible for WIC or a better way to get free rides and daycare for moms early in those pregnancy times and then wow. really the most critical times, which is where we think that, that if you get them in the 20 week 20 to 27. So what's interesting is this started out as an infant mortality project, but what it really does describe and what the data and analytics demonstrated is that there were a lot of social determinant barriers, which anyone else could tell you, we, have, we know that, that, that that's, why they're all trying to fix it, but I think it's then taking the, interve- the insights, making an intervention and then measuring it quick to make sure that that's the right intervention. So last example I'll give is Nurses for Newborns. Very great program, right? The state supports it, et cetera. Well, if all of us on this call know that when we get something knocked on the door, we generally don't answer the door, right? We've am- we have got an get either a ring or we have some way of knowing that it's not somebody we want to talk to. But imagine if the nurse for newborns just knocks on the door without any, you know, they try to call, but the numbers that they, were, they had were maybe not the right number. Or they come at a time when a mom is just, you know, think about moms in their first five, eight weeks of postpartum. And they have the blues, they have postpartum depression, but more importantly, they're just tired. And so, you know, if you don't know when to knock on the door, you're going to miss the opportunity to have a mm-hmm. connection. So, you know, I see a better way of getting, again, back to this patient-centric or person-centric thought process and idea that we have, which is let's build uh, something where we would understand when and how to communicate with this uh, mom because not everybody maybe wants to do email. Some people want to be texted or other people just want to be calling. Some people are like, I don't care, just show up anytime. So getting down to that, that's what the state of Ohio realized is a way to improve their outreach engagement and success in delivering that program.
2: I love the fact that you talked about these different data sets, and I was thinking back when we were doing Medicaid back in the day, if we could have gotten WIC data or SNAP data or some of that other stuff. So obviously, it's it's a, it's a, a great example in Medicaid where you actually have the state government that says, hey, we can get these other sources and pull these. Infant mortality is an issue in the commercial market, too. Um, You do have many people who work for employers who are lower socioeconomic group and pretty close to Medicaid in many cases, you know, housekeepers, gardeners, et cetera. Is something like that feasible in that space for a health plan, or or are they never going to be able to potentially get access to some of that data?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think the answer is, you know, we're talking about infant mortality as a use case, as as an Mm -hmm. example of how these uh, SDOH um, uh, uh, insights were derived, but you really can get to that population. So if you're a Medicaid MCO or even a payer who has people on their plan, there is an opportunity to get to that data and understand ways to uh, really elucidate the factors that drive these costs. So I'll give you an example. Right now, today in the United States, there's probably a large percentage of or there's a percentage of people that don't go home at the discharge time. Whether it's a post congestive heart failure type of patient and they, they're status post cabbage or there's you know um, there's some sort of knee replacement, whatever those pieces end up being. They don't go home because they find out during rounds at 5 p.m. that the ride that was supposed to be there didn't show up. So when you look at cost of care, now you're going to have an additional stay that doesn't otherwise have to be there. But if you knew in advance that this person had a transportation barrier, you could drive down – and CMS is looking at these things, these opportunities, right? What are ways that we can really drive down costs? Well, that's one of them. I assume Verma just mentioned that at AHEP, which is mantra to reduce the cost of care. Yep. Well, that's just the perfect example of, of transportation. It's a very simple one, right? But yeah, when you get to it, though, there's offering somebody a ride through a, a digital tool isn't going to solve it, right? It's actually understanding that when you send them home in the post op uh, knee, knee replacement and you get a, a ride to an Uber, if they're like my dad, he's like, I don't know what an Uber is. I'm not taking that. I'll call a cab. Or I'll just wait till someone gives me a ride home. But when they get home, you have to account for the other things that might happen. Um, what is it a two-bedroom? Is it a two-story house? Yes. Oh, well, you, you didn't account that the, everything they have upstairs is what they need, and so they sit in their, you know, they sit suffering in the, in the first floor. Um, it, it's just simple things like that, you know, that you have to really kind of draw in uh, to better mm-hmm. understand the uh, barriers uh, that people have when you send them home and, and wonder why they come back to the emergency department or get readmitted.
2: I think, yeah, it's it's a great uh, problem to be solving, and obviously this whole issue, and I think as you could get to, if we had more time into it, discuss how you can bring that data in from other data sets. I know you guys have been working on apps and some things like that that could potentially uh, reach out to the individuals at the right time with the right message, and they would respond back and say, here are the issues I'm dealing with. So just uh, really fantastic stuff. I'd like to thank you for coming on, Mike. It's been a pleasure to have you, and I'd love to get you back on again so we can delve into this a little bit further.
1: Yeah, we joked uh, earlier in the (laughs) conversation about this being a three-part series. I'm so passionate about this, and I love the opportunity, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to just share this point of view. And, you know, really what we're talking about are when when we talk about other data sets, we're really talking about uh, third-party data to help really drive to these understanding these behaviors. But it's really about making the moments that matter. And I think that when we can do that, we can help this ecosystem of partners drive towards that, I think you're going to see – some positive outcomes as a result of this. So thank you for the opportunity to to share this uh, story.
2: Oh, it's certainly our pleasure. And uh, I, I believe, too, we'll be seeing these great outcomes coming in the future. Well,
0: thank you so much, Mike, for making this moment matter. And back to you, Greg. That is the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank Michael Peterson, MD, Senior Manager and Health Innovation Lead at Accenture Health and Public Service for his generous time and insights today. For more information or to follow Accenture Health's work, go to www.accenture.com slash health. And follow on Twitter via at Accenture Health, including Dr. Peterson's tweets via at M. Peterson, that's P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N underscore M-D. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying, bye now.
1: 18- us.